how did we get into the modern world? This question is quite significant, and it roots back into the things we've already been through. We've discussed the scientific revolution and the beginning of an era of change and, and dramatic knowledge, and with that coming along and following on its heels, the age of enlightenment, the period in which people begin to think about new ideas, new concepts. From those springboard a whole new set of unique concepts, concepts of freedom and liberty and equality that are reframed in new and exciting ways, which brings a challenge to the status quo, to the monarchies of Europe. England has already experienced a transformation. Now the new nation of America is born out of these very ideas, this very need for revolution. And we saw in France a nation struggle to rise with mixed results. Now we're entering into a period where things are going to change quite drastically. Revolutions are going to happen. In some ways, they're going to pick up speed. And yet something else is going on an age of technological advancement, an era uh, in which the whole entire surface of society is going to be refaced with new ideas, new philosophies, new ways of thinking, new science. And some of these changes, while welcome, will also be quite frightening. Welcome to the period of isms. Buckle up and get ready. I'm taking you from the steam engine all the way to the fields of World War I. Episode 2, The Homunculus The world will not be inherited by the strongest. It will be inherited by those most able to change. Charles Darwin The year was 1910, and Ilya Ivanov was giving a presentation to the World Congress of Zoologists. His subject, you ask? He proposed an experiment to interbreed humans with their closest living relatives, the chimpanzee, via artificial insemination. It took years before he had the chance to attempt the ill-fated hybrid. He started to put human sperm into female chimpanzees, which resulted, of course, in no pregnancies, as we now know. His next step would have to be bolder. He would need a human test subject willing to bear a humanzy, as it might be called. In a surprising twist, he actually found five such women who were willing to do so. But there was an issue with the orangutan that he had brought in 1929. And the experiments were not to be, because in 1930 he was arrested as part of a worldwide bourgeoisie conspiracy and sentenced to the Gulag, which is basically one of Stalin's concentration camps. Think that in a short period of time, humans went from being made in the image of God to being possible mating partners for monkeys. So, we're asking the question about human origins, but we're looking at how people came to conclusions and how the theory of evolution really began to develop. So we first have to go back to things, some things we've already seen. Okay? During the medieval period, most people, it seemed, at least as far as we can tell, uh, seemed to accept the biblical story of human origins. The idea that 6,000 years ago, God created the heavens and the earth, uh, that everybody came from Adam and Eve, and that species were all created kind of fixated. So there might be some variations, but basically there's no new species that are being made, just variations on old species, right? So religion held the answers uh, to the nature of human life, questions about where we come from and why we're here. So the first crack actually in this particular perspective begins to really happen 
during the Renaissance when humanism begins to challenge God's place in a growingly human-centric world. If you're looking at paintings of the Renaissance, you may remember looking at Michelangelo's paintings that it's not really God who's the center of the images, but rather it is man. And that, that idea is very prevalent in Renaissance art. Then uh, the scientific revolution comes along. The emphasis of asking very pertinent questions about uh, exactly how things come to be, looking at a rock for what it really is, asking about its physical nature. So this emphasis puts a, a new spin on the importance of observation, direct knowledge, empirical evidence, uh, and uh, this this creates or causes another crack to begin to uh, happen in this particular perspective. The third one takes place under the Enlightenment, as um, thinkers who have now been challenging what they know scientifically start to challenge a lot of social conventions. They start to look and say, you know, maybe religion doesn't have the answers. Maybe religious texts don't have the answers. And so this is the third crack that appears. So I want you to realize that a majority of society um, is not necessarily losing faith, but there's definitely a level of skepticism that's growing among across the spectrum of society. But the, the skepticism is not necessarily about God. For example, even deists who reject all the miraculous parts of the Bible did affirm, well, I think there's a God. I just don't know about the Bible or some other religious text, whether that's a way to know that God. And, and by the way, it's philosophically illogical to have this concept of an infinite regress. Okay, now some people think that uh, the existence of God doesn't solve that problem. But an infinite regress means that if you set up a, a, a dominoes and you run them for, you know, three or four miles, everyone assumes that at some point, no matter how far in the distance you can't see dominoes, there has to be a starting point. It can't just keep going in this infinite loop, right? It has to have a starting place. And you know, some people would bring that out and say, well, doesn't God have to have an origin as well? Fair enough. But this idea of the infinite regress goes all the way back, really, into the monk from the medieval period known as Thomas Aquinas. Thomas Aquinas recognized God as the unmoved mover, the uncaused cause. And these questions and these ideas start to really come to prominence again uh, during the Age of Enlightenment. So all of this is beginning to shift the ground upon which Europeans understand human origins. The biblical story of an earth that was 6,000 years old and a fixed point where all species came to exist, mostly as they are, is a little bit troubling for the situation that starts to develop in Europe. One person who's definitely going to put a hammer to this is going to be a character named Charles Lyle. Now, Lyle's kind of vilified by some, uh, by some camps, but Lyle was a lawyer, and he took up geology. And so, fascinated by rocks, Lyle spends his time studying the geological record of Earth, and he concludes the Earth itself had to be something akin to 300, years, 300 million years old. And he derived, uh, from, he derived that, really, from a theory in which he had begun to postulate. This theory was called uniformitarianism. There's a very simple way to state this theory, that if you look and see how long it takes for something to happen, 
um, then that process for however long it took to happen has probably always been the same. So the idea is that, that all things continue and have continued at the same rate in the past as we see in the present. If it takes so long for a geological layer to form, then it's always probably taken about that long. This means from the geological strata, Charles Lyell proposes that, well, maybe what we know about the universe isn't entirely accurate. There seems to be a lot of layers, and this probably took a long, long time to build, and so the biblical model just doesn't fit. And Lyle proposes this theory in 1830 in a book that he calls Principles of Geology. Now, Lyle wasn't the first to actually come up with this idea. There was a guy named James Hutton. James was uh, another geologist who thought Earth is changing dramatically, but the mechanisms that change Earth, well, they're not changing so dramatically. So if that's true about the mechanisms changing the physical nature of Earth, maybe that's also true about the mechanisms driving life. Maybe not all species were on the Earth from the beginning, but maybe, uh, maybe it came about a long, drawn-out period of time. That could be true, but of course, the question would be, well, how? Lamarck was already ahead of that curve thinking and existing, he was around before Charles Lyell, and he was already thinking along those same lines as Lyell and, of course, earlier Hutton. And Jean-Baptiste Lamarck was a lot one of many scientists living in the Age of Enlightenment and during the French Revolution. He was born in France before the Revolution occurred, and he's the youngest of 11 children. Now, Lamarck was pushed into a career into the church, but this wasn't his own choice. In fact, it just wasn't a thing for him. So once his father passes away, he leaves the cloth and he joins to he heads out to join the French army. Um, he started studying medicine, but he's really kind of taken interested by botany and again also by fossils that he is studying. In fact, he invents a term that we currently use today. That term is the term invertebrate. Now, some period, some point in Lamarck's life, it becomes more difficult for him to continue and finish his work because he lost his eyesight. And how he found time with science is kind of amazing. He had eight kids, and he had three different wives. Um, of course, that's nothing short of miraculous. And he might have even had a fourth wife. Now, I don't want you to keep in mind, he didn't have them all at the same time. It was just be as a wife would pass away, he would marry another. And over that period, he had, he had had over three different wives and eight children. But um, Lamarck still found time to postulate about human origins. He thinks that humans emerge from lower species, a lot like the way the hook will think when he discovers the cell. The cell's a simple form, but it can be built up and becomes more. So he thought that things moved from very simple to very complex, with, of course, humans as the most complex beings on the top. New species or organs appeared when needed, and they shriveled up and went away when they were no longer needed. But Lamarck couldn't exactly explain the mechanism. He, he did understand adaptation that, and thought that all changes in species were passed down to offspring. But Lamarck wasn't entirely right about that. We know not all changes get passed down or not all traits get passed down. So Mark, Lamarck was a little wrong, but he did build a platform that not only scientists of his time could build on, but also some future scientists who are going to play a critical role uh, will also build upon Lamarck's ideas. To give you an example of something that Lamarck thought, he one thing that's often pointed out is the neck of a giraffe. If you look at the giraffe's neck, um, Lamarck postulated that basically the original giraffe probably had a pretty short neck, but the need to reach the top parts of the tree where the leaves were 
continue to cause this neck to stretch over uh, over generations until it finally reaches this per, you know very long neck that the giraffes have today. So this was his idea of adaptation, and for the most part, he's he's basically right. But the idea of a mechanism that's driving that was something that eluded Lamarck how to phrase that and what to think about that and how that really worked out. And in fact, ironically, it's not going to be Lamarck. It's going to be a theologian, an economist, whose name was Thomas Malthus, who kind of re whose ideas about economics and social ideas begin to also bleed over into the scientific perspective. So enter Thomas Malthus. Now Malthus is kind of a kind of an interesting character, okay? Um, like Lamarck, he he Really, he had been a part of the church, but it just wasn't his like prize career. He continued as a clergyman, but you know, this wasn't, by any means, does not seem to be Parson Malthus's passion. He marched to his own drum. When everybody else was wearing those white powdered wigs of the period, Thomas Malthus wore a pink one. You know, yeah, because he was a punk, guys. All right, he was totally punk. And it's kind of difficult to imagine him. He's playful, energetic. He's very cheery. People like him, and he's considered to be the prophet of doom and gloom. So go figure that one. Malthus thought that human population was in a runaway period of unsustainable growth, and he wrote an essay on it about human population. He said there would come a point in time where there simply wouldn't be enough food to feed the population, and this would result in widespread starvation. Now, and it would basically weed out a lot of, or some, of, if not a lot, of Earth's inhabitants. Of course, Malthus' predictions are frightening, and as of this point, they haven't come true. But in a weird way, he's kind of almost backhandedly um, divining the concept of coming climate change with this idea that, that the world can only support so much and that if you abuse that and you create an unsustainable situation, it will cause uh, an overload. And uh, so this is something that Malthus is maybe not intending, but certainly, certainly factors in. Um, now, Malthus, of course, unfortunately, with writing an essay like that, people think that he's, you know, a jerk or rude or a misanthrope. And so he spent a lot of time letting people know he really wasn't an enemy. He was just a guy who had a theory, an idea. But Malthus's theory is an important theory. It's a critical theory. Because upon this idea, they will meet in the life of, of a character that we all know and love, Mr. Charles Darwin. Now, Charles Darwin's grandfather, Erasmus, also espoused the same ideas about um, species coming from lower ones. And this was a huge influence on, on young Charles's thinking. He loved his grandfather Erasmus, and Erasmus played a key role in Darwin's development. In addition, there was a creationist whose name was George Cuvier. Cuvier is an interesting character. He and Darwin write in, he basically disapproves of Darwin's ideas, which he lets him know in some of the letters that happened later on when Darwin begins to espouse the concepts of evolution. Uh, Cuvier believed that, um, but he did believe there were new species that were formed after Noah's flood. And uh, so for, for him, he would say something to the effect of, see, look, all the reptiles are basically smaller versions of dinosaurs, okay? And this proves that, that species do change over time and they adapt to their environment. He called Noah's flood, not Noah's flood, he referred to it as catastrophism. And he was actually a very bright uh, character. Um, uh, George Cuvier. But of course, he and Darwin are going to have some big disagreements later on. But in the meantime, Darwin seems like the right candidate. Uh, we think about Darwin as being droll and, and, and uh, hard and atheistic, and we think about him having those kinds of traits and characteristics. But actually, Darwin was a seminary student.
And although he wasn't a very distinguished one, he loved the, the writings of William Paley, the, the, the theologian slash philosopher, who had wrote some piece, wrote a piece on the evidences of Christianity. This is something that Darwin took very seriously. He liked this kind of deductive reasoning uh, that was that was proposed by Paley's and Paley's ideas. He also had something uh, he used kind of the watchmaker argument. Okay, but Darwin also loved something else. He loved butterflies. He had a huge collection, a little uh, butterfly collection that he had uh, kept in cases and things at his house. He was very interested in science. And that interest in science in many ways was probably stronger in him than any other notion or interest that he had. He, um, he loved philosophy, and his philosophical studies started to impel him towards naturalism. And he was looking for God in the design of nature, which now, looking back, seems ironic, but not so much to Darwin. In 1831, he gets this opportunity, and uh, he is... He gets his opportunity to serve as a naturalist, and which means he goes on the ship and he catalogs the things that he sees and takes note of it. And so Darwin needed, they needed the naturalist. Darwin needed more experience as a, natural, as a naturalist, so it fit together. And when Darwin gets on the ship, it's not, a, it's not a fun time for him at first. In fact, he struggles to even eat on the ship for a long time. He eats mostly raisins and bread. He keeps all his notes in a notebook labeled notebook B. Okay, that's what he called it. And um, on the ship, he meets the captain, Captain Fitzroy. Fitzroy gives him a book. The book is entitled The Principles of Geology by Charles Lyell, who was a friend of the captain. Darwin loved rocks. So the book captivates Darwin. The other book that's really got Darwin thinking is a book called Paradise Lost. And um, this gives, this asks a serious question as to why um, evil existed. And uh, these become young Darwin's companion reads over the next five years. As he goes and travels the world, he's outside of his shell, outside of his place in England. And there, um, he encounters a lot of suffering, not only among people, but also among nature. Things that are going to now bring new and uh, important questions into Darwin's own mind. He takes a serious turn. And out of that, the theory of evolution begins to formulate. So from 1831 to 1836, Darwin traveled the world. And it was at the Galapagos Islands, which are the most famous there in South America, where a collection of data challenged and ultimately overthrew everything that we thought we knew about science. His finches, turtles, and other creatures provide him with the explanation for how the mysterious mechanism actually works and what it really is. So Darwin comes back to England, and when he returns back to England, he becomes part of the Geological Society, and he marries his first cousin, Emma Sedgwick. So Darwin begins writing as he works for the Geological Society, but it's not until 1858 that he actually drops the huge bombshell. He was writing other things that were already talking about evolution, but there he sits down to really define exactly how it works. He had been reading, looking through a lot of Malthus's work, so he was, per, he was kind of ready to share this research, and it was a good time to do that because he wasn't the only person who was finding this theory. Darwin is only the co... He's the one we know about or we hear about the most, but really he's only the co-founder or the co-discoverer, I should say, not founder, that's a bad word, but discoverer of, uh, of evolution. There was another guy named Alfred 
Russell Wallace, and he had figured out the concept of ascent by modification uh, around the same time that Darwin had. Because all the ideas were kind of out there, there just needed to be somebody to put those ideas together. So the origin of species was one in which rocks society to its core. This was the first time that society could actually figure out a way by which humans and other living things could exist without the existence of God. Now that might not sound very shocking and provocative to you, but to Europe, this is going to have a long-standing thing. So let's look at a little bit about how this actually worked. So using Malthus's ideas, Darwin postulated that all species tend to overpopulate. And the reason why is because species know that there's a good chance that their offspring won't survive. So in order to make sure that offspring survives, they try to have plenty of, uh, plenty of children. Uh, we see this in the animal kingdom. And in Darwin's time, this would have also been very prevalent within, uh, with, among humans as well. People oftentimes had a high mortality rate. They lost children very young. So it was necessary to have a number of them because a lot of them weren't going to survive into childhood or, or into adulthood. Most of them were going to die in childhood. So Darwin said that, look, species tend to overpopulate because that's just the way things work and because they know that only some of the offspring they produce will actually be able to stay alive. In order to keep their species alive, it becomes important for them to overpopulate. So then Darwin decided that, or, or talked about this, and he said, so how do, how do the ones that survive, how do they survive? Well, he says competition then becomes a second factor in this. Competition uh, ensues because even though there's a lot of people, a lot of a lot of species that are alive, they're all trying to get the same resources. This could be people or it could be animals, right? They want to get the same resources to survive, but only a, fall, a small fraction of those resources can be given. So resources are limited, but, but want is unlimited by this boon of species, by this boon of population. And so this means that there has to be competition. Only some people are going to get what they need. Only some only some animals are going to survive. And how are they going to survive? So this is where this third concept comes into play. In order for them to survive, there's going to be characteristics that give them a stronger advantage to survive, whether that's stronger muscles to, to run or whether that's uh, st you know stronger wings to fly or in the case of the, the finches, the size of their beaks. Darwin decided that during times of, uh, during times of, of trouble and and a drought that the longer beaks were were better to have they were more advantageous and so more of the finches who had longer beaks survived and therefore passed on their genes whereas during times where there was plenty of rain uh, the shorter beaks were more advantageous which means the shorter beak finches were the ones that were mated with and they were the ones who passed on their genes so these characteristics that give the chance for survival these are called variations and this is this is a, a key core concept of things that Lamarck talked about and also the things that Darwin is, is postulating. So Darwin says then some individuals in a population are better fit to live in changes that happen in the environment. They adapt, and that's called adaptation. We could use that for an example with the polar bear. The polar bear has uh, white fur, um, which is you know an adaptation. It helps them to hide in plain sight. They have thick blubber to keep them warm. They have big furry feet that help them walk in the snow. Uh, and so there's a lot of different 
a lot of different uh, things, the polar bear is best adapted for that environment. The black bear is not going to be able to make it. So the polar bear is going to have the best chance of doing so. So this theory or this concept, he refers to as natural selection. Nature is selecting the best traits that give, give a, a species, any species, uh, the best chance or possibility for survival. I want to make sure those best traits are passed on. And uh, this gives them, this gives, this This is what drives, or this is the mechanism that drives um, how, how traits are passed on. And this natural selection is a bombshell. So, where's the evidence then? And how did Darwin know that this was true? Well, this was more difficult. Now, Darwin, when he's done, he didn't intend to write atheistically, but... Actually, he, you know, he's actually buried at Westminster Abbey, so he himself was, you know, may not have been what we consider to be an atheist. But Darwin recognizes that he has challenged the views of human origins. He has changed the way things work in a dramatic way. He kind of took the Renaissance and he tilted it on its head. So this is critical. This is an explosive moment, 1859. And during the Renaissance... God had taken a sidestep, so man could step into the light, and God was now at the side. But now God was not only at the side, God was almost out of the... He was like moving slowly in the backdrop of the picture. Even man was stepping aside. Because after all, maybe man isn't really that special after all. Maybe humans are just one creature amid so many whose importance you really can't even quantify or decide whether they're important or not. So Darwin's questions then about why evil existed from John Milton's Paradise Loss, coupled together with his scientific concepts. And uh, this presents something very troubled to Darwin. Darwin is not pictured by most historians as being a very happy person. Darwin was very depressed. And perhaps some of that played into Darwin's own theories and ideas. Um, he knew that if, uh, but he knew that if his theory was going to stand up to scrutiny, what he was looking for was in the ground. Bones would need to show how the transition would even occur. But there were other issues as well. How could traits be passed on? Now, we think about genetics and we're like, well, obviously, dude, genes. But that's not obvious to Darwin. He's going to spend the rest of his life wondering and looking for this answer. And funny thing is, it's quite possible the answer came to him in the mail. Let me tell you how that happened. So... An engineer named Jenkins had actually challenged Darwin about this very thing. He'd asked him, how do traits persist? I mean, why aren't traits just swallowed up by the constant breeding where you just lose these traits? But you don't lose them. They continue on for, for generations and generations. Well, Darwin didn't exactly know. I mean, he had some ideas, but, you know, he wasn't sure. So in walks Gregor Mendel. Now, Mendel and Darwin are never going to meet. Mendel was born in 1822. And he was born. He was born the son of a peasant in what we would now call modern day Czech. When he was twelve years old, Darwin was beginning his voyage of the Beagle. In 1843, he joined the religious order known as the Augustinians. But Mendel was not a real fantastic student. He didn't really distinguish himself to start with. He took classes to prepare to be a monk. Just even while the 1848 revolution is happening all around him, just never really stepped up to the plate and did anything extraordinary. Um, he took a shot at the priesthood. He thought maybe that would be the job for him. 
but he just wasn't cut for it. For example, he had a bad stutter, he had trouble handling any kind of emotional stress, and he was cripplingly shy, and so the priesthood was really not a good place for him to be. He tried to teach math for a while, that was a little bit of a disaster, and so he he, he focused his mind on teaching science. Now, in order to teach science, you needed to pass the basic science exam at the University of Vienna. He went to Vienna, he took it, he failed. So he was sent there to study because probably they wanted to see, well, maybe this kid, let's see if we can get him, you know, something that he can do that he's good at. So he um, he goes to the University of Vienna, and actually he meets uh, Doppler, the, you know, famous for the Doppler effect, if you, if you like that kind of thing. He meets Doppler, he idolizes Doppler. But uh, when he goes to take the exam again, he doesn't pass this time because he doesn't complete it. Now what happened here I suppose we'll never know. Maybe he just decided he didn't want to do it, or maybe it's possible he knew that he couldn't com complete it. Whatever the case was, he never did pass the exam to be a science teacher. Very interesting, huh? So he returns to the monastery, and he goes to doing something pretty pretty ordinary. Um, he goes to working in his garden. But in his garden, he's going to stumble upon some findings that are going to make him the father of genetics, the flunky of the science exam is going to be the father of genetics, the person whose theories drive has driven the modern world into a frenzy. Just want to point that out. Kind of amazing. So to understand and appreciate Mendel's work on genetics, you should actually know kind of what he's working with. So there's not a lot known about how traits get passed down. Now, they go. we can go back to earlier periods of history and see what people thought, and some of those ideas were kind of still percolating around, especially among the lower classes. But let me tell you exactly what people thought. So for example, in 530 BCE, there was a Greek thinker named Pythagoras. You know, the guy, A squared plus B squared equals C squared. Um, yeah, that guy. So Pythagoras had his own idea. By the way, he also had his own cult. It's kind of awesome, but I won't get into that. Um, he thought that semen moved through the male body and it would absorb what he called mystical vapors. Whatever that is, I don't know, but it's kind of awesome. Mystical vapors. And basically, eye color, skin tone, voice, and everything came from the man's body. And it was obviously then put into the woman's body, and she, the womb nourished it, and it became a child. The theory was known as spermism. And in fact, the Greek, the Greek playwright Asicles wrote a play. The play was called Eumenides. And in the play, he kind of works out this bit where he thinks about this idea, is a person allowed to commit matricide or killing one's own mother, which he concludes, yes, you can, because the mother didn't really have anything to do with your life at all. She gave birth to you, but really that's all she pretty much contributed to you. She was a carrier, an incubator for, for the male sperm. So, I mean, I'm guessing what I'm saying is probably you can imagine with people who thought like this, you know, Mother's Day wasn't really quite the holiday that Father's Day became. There was another one, and there was another theory, though, that percolated around the ancient Greeks that still held sway and still had some, some repercussions in this period. The father of biology, Aristotle, he, he had thought that the things that Pythagoras said were kind of dumb. So in the 300s, he proposes another theory. He says, yes, the mother does play a part in the child. The father and the mother both have semen, he says. The male semen sends a message to the female semen, which, of course, has the raw materials to build whatever's in the message the father sent. 
So this wasn't actually really a terrible idea, all things considered, especially when you compare it with the others. And Plato, who thinks about this idea, also uh, postulates and says, if children were arithmetic derivatives of both parents, then it would be possible to create the perfect one. So Plato's thinking way ahead, okay? We're not going to get there, but we'll come back here because there's something there to, to mine just a little bit later in this series. This one, the third one, is by far my favorite theory. This one is called, um, the official term is actually preformationism, okay? So in 1572, the Renaissance scientist Paracelsus uh, postulated the theory that probably didn't start with him but seemed to be circulating among the alchemists. Inside of a male sperm is a little, tiny, fully formed human known as the homunculus. In 1694, the Dutch scientist Nicholas Hartzoeker even drew a sketch of what he believes it looks like. You can look it up on the internet. If you don't have this, for those of you that are my students, you can see it on the document I put it up. It's kind of amazing. Now, this was only one possibility. Hartzoeker thought he saw this under the microscope. He didn't. But there was another theory that said maybe actually the homunculus is in the mother's egg. This was called ovalism, and then the sperm just activated this as well. So the alchemists even had recipes for this sort of thing. They believe you could take the father's sperm, for example, you could put it in a jar, buried in the ground, covered with horse manure, and somehow, I don't even know how, you'd feed it with old blood, and it would grow into a baby. Then you could kind of almost eliminate um, the need to have a woman at all. And you could also, another theory was you could place it inside of a pumpkin with urine in it, for about six to seven weeks and do the same thing and get what you want. But you had to be careful because it's possible that you might grow a monster. Well, this explained everything um, theologically in some ways, but it also presented new challenges. This meant that every homunculus has even smaller homuncula in it. And that one even has a smaller one. It's like a Russian nesting doll, the Matryoshka dolls. When does it end? How many homunculuses are inside of every homunculus? Okay, pretty weighty stuff. This means, this is like an infinite regress, and critics were quick to point that out. This means that when Adam sinned in the Garden of Eden, all humanity was inside his sperm. Okay, and... If ovalism was true inside of Eve's eggs, all right, lot of lot to carry around there, people. Also, new questions emerge: What happened to unused sperm? After all, if they are all fully formed humans and they're unbaptized, they went to hell. So that's kind of a bad deal. Okay, so this is one contender. Okay, now another contender is something called maternal impressions. For example, if the woman experienced a trauma by fright, it could scar the child. Uh, one woman had a pregnancy. She craved strawberries. She didn't eat the strawberries. The baby come out with patches that look like strawberry, like like a strawberry sharp shape markings on it. Okay, you got to give the baby strawberries if the baby craves strawberries. Okay, give baby what baby needs. Uh, then there was another one. If you, they thought if you had a one-armed man that scared you, your baby could come out with one arm, and it happens. Uh, one woman in the French Revolution had a baby with a birthmark that looked like the hats worn by the revolutionaries. 
She was considered to be so patriotic, she was granted a lifetime pension by the French government for her patriotism, ladies and gentlemen. So, uh, a lot of these ideas were mostly old wise fables. A lot of people in Europe knew this stuff that I just told you wasn't totally true. But this was stuff that had been said before about human, uh, human origins and genetics. And there wasn't a ton to go with. So what Mendel begins doing is Mendel understands, they're beginning to understand that, that they're looking for chemical components of traits. They now realize that there's, there's chemical aspects to this. So Mendel starts working with peas through a series of breeding experiments. He tries for texture like smooth versus wrinkled or, or the color or shape or some other trait that he's picked out. And he's very careful because he only tries to study two variants. Now in the world of, of reality, there's often more than two variants, but he wants to test these two variants to find out what happens. These traits are called alleles. And they come from the Greek word alas, which means another. So his meticulous work was presented to the world that basically yawned at him. Uh, no one cared about his study. And it was met with basically universal apathy. After he had um, compiled his findings, he sent out his little manuscript with findings to about 40 people. And it seems all but certain he likely sent one to Charles Darwin, who he did not know. And Darwin was well-known. He was kind of celebrity status. He probably got tons of mail every day. He probably got a copy of Mendel's research, which happened to hold the secret to the things that he needed to know. But he probably considered it junk mail, and it probably went in his file 13. So moral of the story is, open your mail. Now, Mendel was anything but alone in his discovery. In Switzerland, there was a physiologist named Mischer who had all who had been studying salmon when he became fascinated by a gray substance that came from the sperm of the fish. Who comes up with this stuff? Just extraordinary, okay? Like, who, who, who looks at that? When I go fishing, I don't even think about that, okay? So he worked very hard, but had nothing to show for all his labor. He was tired, he was frustrated, uh, and he was growing sicker because he kept his window open all the time in order to maintain good temperatures for his samples because s salmon sperm deteriorates fast unless it's kept really, really cold. So Mischer has more or less solved and more or less started to solve the same problems that Mendel had solved. Of course, Mischer got, uh, got his samples from squeezing the sex organs of fish, but the, then the phosphate bases were discovered by Hopp and Sailor. After, after a while, though, after looking at this and looking it over, Mischer just can't quite wrap his mind around. He's actually discovered DNA and doesn't realize it. He's got, he's got some basic concepts down. But he's looking at it and he goes, this can't be true. Everything can't be from just four bases. That doesn't make any sense. So he doesn't pursue it. He goes a different direction. And unfortunately, Mischer didn't live long, so he didn't get a chance to really go back and, and look at it later. But his work was collected by his uncle and distributed to some extent. But for the most part, it was the same as with Mendel. His work is basically forgotten. In fact, almost, almost 30 years passes before anybody starts to really take notice of it. Um, and same with Mendel. Mendel, who was a troublemaker, so the monks burned a lot of his papers. Some of his stuff actually got lost because they didn't realize what they had in their hands. Uh, the monks were ready to get rid of Mendel. He was an embarrassment. He actually got into a fight with a cop one time. I mean, he, he wasn't the model monk, okay? So the idea of DNA seems like, basically, guys, it seems lost. 
In the early 1900s, Hugo de Vries and Wiseman start cutting tails off of mice. The funny thing is, the offspring still have their tails. To figure this out, they rediscover Mendel and Mischer, and the race to understand human origins is on. All right, students, do your homework, and we'll come back and we'll talk about uh, the rise of socialism.